This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. How extensive was child sex abuse in the Catholic Church in Colorado? How recently has it occurred? Questions we'll hopefully have clear answers to with a new independent inquiry announced Tuesday. While this process will certainly include painful moments and cannot ever fully restore what was lost, we pray that it will at least begin the healing process. The voice of Denver's Archbishop Samuel Aquila, who has pledged cooperation. The genesis of this new probe goes back to Colorado's previous Attorney General, Cynthia Kaufman, who had these words for survivors. To them, I want to say, we recognize your suffering and we validate your experience. So what do people abused by clergy think of Colorado's approach? I reached Jeb Barrett. He leads Denver SNAP. That's the Survivors Network of Those Abused by Priests. Jeb, thanks so much for being with us. It's a great pleasure to talk with you again. I just want to note that you've been doing back-to-back interviews uh, with television stations in your home and with, you know, reporters like myself giving you a call. How are you doing? This is like a, a painful chapter of your life, and you're having to talk about it a lot today. Well, it's uh, it's draining, but it's very satisfying to be able to talk freely about something that really concerns me. AP is supposed to call back in a little while, and I've been talking with a TV station in Canada. Will you remind us what happened to you because of abuse in the Catholic Church, just briefly. What happened to me and to countless others has affected how, how I've been able to handle relationships, how I feel about myself. I've been sober 40 years now. If I had at least find sobriety to get away from using that as an escape from the trauma of childhood, I probably wouldn't be here doing anything that I'm doing right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I'm hopeful now with this investigation that it was instituted by Cynthia Kaufman, our past attorney general, that we can begin to see some kind of justice and transparency that's needed to help protect kids in the future. Well, that's the perfect segue to ask how you feel about this particular arrangement. The current attorney general, Phil Weiser, stood next to a high-ranking official in the Catholic Church here and said... We will hire an independent investigator to look into this. What do you make of this approach? I think that's the right way at this point. Since Colorado statutes didn't allow the attorney general to impanel an investigation, a criminal investigation, like we hoped for when we contacted them back in September, we have now at least some way with an independent attorney looking into the personnel and secret records of the the archdiocese and the other two dioceses in Colorado to begin exposing how they handled abuse reports in the past. That is very good. That's very encouraging. We're still hoping, however, we can get this legislature to do something about the civil statute of limitations. And I've been meeting with and talking with some of our representatives and senators about that. Yeah, it was uh, very important to you, I remember from our past conversation, that whatever investigation, whatever probe query happened, that it have access to the personnel records in the Catholic Church. And it seems that that's the case here. Yeah, they keep 
you know, fastidious records of all of their interactions and placements of their clergy. So the, the secrets are, are there in their files. You know, I have to say the church is guilty of cover-up for centuries of what was going on, which is not fair to the children or parents or any of us. There is also, as part of this, some potential compensation and support for victims. I wonder if, in your own case, reparations might have made a difference. Well, I was a part of a case against the Diocese of Helena uh, five or six years ago. In Montana. There was, right. There are 380-some plaintiffs. There was very little financial compensation to any of us. However, that particular settlement had a page full of non-monetary agreements, one of which was that they would publish the names of the priests, deacons, and nuns on their website. They would also publish it in their diocesan newspaper. In addition, they committed themselves to no longer fight extension of statute of limitations or removal of statute of limitations. One thing we know about victims of abuse is that they sometimes wait years, decades even, to speak up about what happened to them. Do you think a process like this, bringing this into the light, might also encourage people who were abused in Colorado to finally speak up about that? I think that's exactly the way it works. And hopefully they will speak up and they will seek help and healing so they're not haunted and haunted by their childhood trauma, which never goes completely away. And most of the calls that I've received from people looking for some answers are people in their 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s. Uh, I hate to say it, but, you know, in their 70s. And I'm working with one person right now who was abused in San Antonio, who's 70 now, and still trying to get some sort of satisfaction or, you know, some sort of response. The priest who abused him has been exposed already. So he's, you know, he simply feels that I wasn't the only one so I can speak up. Did you ever get to confront your abuser? No, no. Someone asked me earlier today if if he was still living, and I, I think I said I don't care. Thank you so much for talking to us. Well, thank you for all that you're doing, Ryan. Jeb Barrett leads Denver SNAP. That's the Survivors Network of Those Abused by Priests. The Mexican drug kingpin known as El Chapo is likely headed to Colorado to spend the rest of his life behind bars. Supermax in Florence, Colorado, about 40 minutes outside Pueblo, is considered the highest security federal prison in the country. It houses notorious criminals like Unabomber Ted Kaczynski and Jokar Zarnayev, who was convicted of the Boston Marathon bombing. I'm joined by Supermax's former warden from 2002 to 2005. That's Robert Hood. Robert, welcome to our program. Thank you. El Chapo will be sentenced in June, and he's expected to get life without parole. Help us understand why he's likely to come to Florence, Colorado. Well, there's only 122 federal prisons And when you look at El Chapo's escape history, his violence, his access to funds and people, uh, within the system, it's it's, uh, not even questioned. He will not go to a camp. He will not go to low security or even a penitentiary. He will come to Colorado at the nation's most uh, 
high-security prison. Most high-security prison. What differentiates it from the others? Give us a sense of the technology it has, uh, the reinforcements it has in place. Sure. Well, it's located on 600 acres in a fairly remote place in Colorado. And uh, it's on a complex with approximately 2,600 other federal inmates. There's four prisons there, actually. The uh, Supermax is just one of four. So when you think about it, the remoteness, the fact that he's uh, would be located within uh, a complex with four total prisons, it has uh, six gun towers at the Supermax, six gun towers next door at the federal penitentiary, an abundance of razor wire, uh, several staff on the outside on mobile patrols uh, 24 hours a day that are heavily armed. And that's just the external part. When you get inside the prison, it's, it's not like what the other federal inmates have. Most of the 4,700 federal inmates that are doing life, they're walking around the compound today. They're mm-hmm. truly going to school, they're going to church, they're going to work, whatever. And they're, they're accepting their time. To come to the Supermax is totally different. How so? Give us a sense of what a day in the life is there. Well, most of the day, 23 hours of the day, El Chapo will be in his cell, a 7 by 12 foot cell. So for 84 square feet, he's going to be you know, walking around, period, end of story. But that's uh, inside the cell. It has a cement bed, a cement desk, a cement stool. Uh, he, he would have a black and white TV set, very small, uh, confined behind some Lexan glass so he can't break it or destroy it. And so when you think about the life of uh, any person in a 23-hour environment, going out to a caged environment for the one hour, um, it's pretty stark to say the least. So the recreation is in that cage, that small cage, one hour a day. Now, those are all sort of the, that's the hardware. But it occurs to me that El Chapo has proven himself very persuasive. He clearly has developed relationships I guess, with guards to be able to escape previously. And so you have to think about the kind of psychological barriers here. Um, Would guards be specially screened? Would they be rotated out to prevent, I don't know, the kinds of relationships that have allowed El Chaba to escape in the past? Sure. Um, I call them correctional officers instead of guards, but the correctional officers clearly are are trained. Since 1994, when the Supermax opened, and by the way, it replaced Alcatraz throughout the years, um, the staff are very carefully selected. They practice everything from hostage negotiations to internal, external assault. So it's a a special team of the um, approximately 38,000 federal uh, Bureau of Prison Workers. So it's a, a special group, if you will. Now, having said that, um, throughout the years when we built this, we there's still a concern. You know, even though he's not going to be walking around the compound, he'll be locked in not only, in my opinion, not only the supermax, but I think what will occur, he'll be given what's called a special administrative measure. That's uh, a process, process under the United States law that says that you can put a... Uh, an inmate, under these restrictions for where you house them in the prison, their correspondence, their visits. So it is highly likely that he will not have his wife visit, his children visit, anyone but his lawyer visit if he gets the special administrative measure. He will have that TV set, a black and white TV set I mentioned. However, if the SAMS, we call it, the special administrative measure is applied, 
uh, it's very likely that all the program would not be live time. He would have the History Channel. He'd have various pl- uh, channels, huh. movies, etc. Nothing live. And a newspaper that is normally 30 days old. So basically what you're doing is saying, enough is enough. You're going to the Supermax, but more importantly, you'd be placed in a location that he most likely will not even be able to communicate with any other inmate or any other um, or see any other inmate. So the staff are obviously restricted to the area that he would be in. It's not everyone goes and sees him. And we sign in, there's cameras, there's audio, there's an abundance of caution um, for an inmate like this. I see. So any interactions, perhaps with correctional officers, would also be recorded. Other eyes would be on that. Has anyone ever escaped or come anywhere close uh, from the Federal Supermax facility since, as you mentioned, it opened in 94? No, there's been no escape. And I think, what, uh, as I said, when you look at the internal provisions... You know, the the brick-and-mortar part of the uh, facility is one thing, and the remoteness and all the other descriptions I gave. It's really the internal procedures that make this, uh, you know, when you're watching a person 24 hours a day, and you have an abundance of staff, and even if there is a problem, you have three other institutions right within that complex to respond with their staff. Um, So when you look at the procedures that most prisons can't afford, uh, that's why this is the Alcatraz of the Rockies. That's why this is a place we send the uh, the worst of the worst in the, the federal system. The Alcatraz of the Rockies. Robert Hood, was this a job you enjoyed? Well, very much. I, I actually, I, I couldn't even be talking to you if I was still working there. We kind of uh, shut out the media, if you will. But uh, I enjoyed it so much. The only reason I'm not there is because by law, you must retire at 57 years of age. That's for all federal law enforcement, by the way. So every one of the 38,000 Federal Bureau of Prisons staff members, they're considered uh, hazardous duty employees. So, you know, I, I, I respect that. But to be honest with you, I, I'd rather be working in the, the Supermax this morning. You'd still be there if you could. What was gratifying about this work before we go? Well, I do believe in... in uh, man's capacity to change. And so even though all of these 400 inmates, they only have 400 at the Supermax, all have done horrendous acts. But my job is to make sure, was to make sure, that all my staff would go home safe to their families. So once I believe in man's capacity to change, I'm not rewarding him. But again, I, I do believe that inmates are sent to prison as punishment, not for punishment. So it was rewarding in the sense that I was get, able to get closer to these inmates, get a trust level going, and make it a safer place for, hopefully for the society, but also for the staff that work there. Robert, thank you. I've enjoyed talking to you. Thank you. I appreciate the time. Robert Hood is a former warden of the Federal Supermax Prison in Florence, Colorado. Convicted drug kingpin Joaquin El Chapo Guzman is likely to be housed there once he's sentenced in June. A controversial plan is now on hold that would have given IV drug users a safe, supervised place to inject in Colorado. So what's next? We first told you Tuesday about the decision to scrap a bill that would have cleared the way for a pilot project in Denver. Democratic State Senator Brittany Pedersen of Lakewood was the sponsor, and she pulled it after realizing that even with her own party in control, there was too much to overcome. Day by day, as it continued to be a political target, I didn't have the support at the Capitol to ensure that we actually built 
a level of understanding with members, this has become the bright and shiny object to try to scare people. So with that debate on hold for now, let's bring in CPR's health reporter, John Daly. Hi, John. Hi, Ryan. This is not something that exists yet, these safe injection sites in the U.S. at all, right? That's right. There are about 100 worldwide, mostly in Canada, Europe, and Australia. Here in the U.S., there are a bunch of cities in various stages of trying to set something up. Seattle announced its plans a year ago. And just recently, Philadelphia's city council has approved the idea. BuzzFeed, which recently did a big article on this, reports that San Francisco, New York City, and Ithaca, New York, are also looking into the idea. Now, you've reported that the results are still coming in on the impact of having these sorts of facilities. What do researchers know? What do they want to know? Well, what they want to know is do they lower fatal overdose rates? Do they lower infections among IV drug users? Can they really encourage more people to seek treatment? And on the flip side, what happens to drug use and crime when you have sites like these? Do more people use drugs or do addicts use more drugs? Do property and quality of life crimes increase. Back in 2017, the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation funded a report to look into these questions, and the research concluded that so far there just aren't a lot of big studies, and so it's hard to really draw clear conclusions to these questions at this point. It's such an interesting chicken and egg proposition. It's like you want the research to inform whether the sites work, but you need the sites to do the research. Right, right, um, exactly. Okay, it, it sounds like there will be uh, more time for research before Colorado goes down this road, if it goes down this road. Uh, meantime, what else are people working on to try to combat drug addiction and opioid addiction in particular? Well, lawmakers are looking at a variety of things, including funds for recovery support services, improved warning labels, the creation of a standard for sober living facilities, and steps to ensure doctors don't have financial incentives for prescriptions of any kind. Also, you'll recall that last year we had a very innovative pilot program here in Colorado in hospitals that where they were looking to reduce the number of opioids prescribed in hospital ERs. Yeah. Now that push is expanding because it was found to be successful, reducing opioid prescribing by 36%. So that movement is spreading to other hospitals. And now there's a second Colorado project to do that same thing in a variety of specialties. What about on the treatment side? Well, the state's Office of Behavioral Health has been taking some innovative strides. It helped develop something called the OP Rescue Treatment Locator. It's an app that folks can use and they can find a provider, a medication-assisted treatment provider on a map. Uh, they're also... When you say medication-assisted, you mean like methadone? Right? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Right. Yeah, exactly. They're also really increasing the number of providers to give medication-assisted treatment, which is considered a good way to help get people off of opioids. The state has ramped up a certification process where an advanced nurse practitioner or a physician, someone with a medical degree, can get certified and provide MAT. And then one last thing, the opioid reversal drug, naloxone, you'll recall, it's called Narcan as yeah. well. There's 12,000 naloxone kits that have been distributed around the state, and the state's looking to ramp up education on that front as well. Thanks, John. You bet. CPR's health reporter John Daly breaking down news that Colorado lawmakers will not try to approve a safe injection site in Denver this year. Okay, the other day we brought you the crazy story of school children who were tattooed during the Cold War. 
It was a way to document their blood type if they needed a transfusion after a nuclear attack. Our guest was a woman from Niwot, Colorado, whose mother was a guinea pig in what was dubbed Operation Tat-Type. Well, listener Spencer Niebuhr of Denver points out that the podcast 99% Invisible recently did the same story. Spencer, it's a coincidence, but we're always happy to elevate other great work. So here's just a snippet of their episode called Atomic Tattoos. Did getting a tattoo make you feel safer? Yes, I guess so. I thought that I had done the thing that was available to do to help in case of a a total disaster. I thought I had done the right thing. But maybe more importantly, it was just doing something that made her feel better. It was hard to imagine the bigger picture. No. (laughs) No, I didn't dwell on all of that. I I didn't envision myself lying there and a doctor coming up and throwing up my arm and saying, aha, O plus, transfuse this child with O plus blood. No, I never played that all out in my mind. She says she was way too busy. She was talking with her friends about boys or what they were going to do over the weekend. Daily life, the life she was living, was much more attractive. Otherwise, we'd go crazy if we had to deal intensively with all of these terrible threats. It's a certain amount of stuff. I can't think about that. You just got to keep going and do other things. I think that's, that's one of the great capacities we have. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Sometimes our darkest moments are best expressed through music. Take, for instance, these military veterans from Nashville who worked with a top country music writer. Over there, I knew what I was fighting for. With the good guys, with the bad guys, kick some butt and win a war. But they don't need me now, and these days it's not so clear what I'm fighting for back here. These veterans were part of a nonprofit called Operation Song. And now a psychiatrist in the western slope town of Montrose wants to bring the program to his town, which is something of a haven for vets. Dr. David Good joins me now. Doctor, welcome to the program. Thank you much. I appreciate your having me. I'm reminded of something the late composer Leonard Bernstein once said. Music can move the unmovable and communicate the unknowable. Are you talking about that kind of deep dive into a patient's traumatic experiences with this music program? I am, very much so. Um, The veterans are able to access memories, emotions through the music in ways that talk therapy or other modalities may not allow. Uh, So we see a lot of benefit from the music therapy. They access memories that they might not in talk therapy. You've seen that borne out? Yes. Yes, I've seen that borne out with music therapy. I've seen it borne out with journaling, uh, other kinds of art therapy. Uh, where talk therapy, you just you can meet with them for uh, many sessions and still not get anywhere. And then they can access it through the music or other kinds of art therapy. I have to think that's especially important in dealing with trauma, where... The body's functions serve to maybe uh, squirrel away a memory, to lock it up, and and this is a way of accessing it. 
that's that's true. And uh, in many respects, the healing or the closure that comes from the music therapy uh, is more of a sensory experience. It's not just cognitively being aware or telling yourself you're over it. You feel it. You feel that it is now a memory and it doesn't have the emotional power that it used to have over you. Interesting. I think any of us who've gotten goosebumps when we've listened to a song have had that experience. Exactly. Without violating confidentiality, can you think of a specific veteran that you think would really benefit from this approach? Yes. Uh, I have someone in mind uh, that has... uh, uh, significant PTSD as well as a TBI and traumatic brain injury. Exactly. And I think he would be a wonderful uh, candidate. What I want to do is make sure that each veteran that is part of our retreat uh, has a therapist to be able to process uh, what comes out of the music therapy. Uh, the music therapy is only one tool. Uh, and once the emotions and memories start coming more to the surface, then I would like a therapist to be available for that veteran to help process what's going on. Well, that's fascinating. So the songwriting can't happen in isolation. There needs to be therapy along with it. Uh, on Operation Song's website, there's a quote from a veteran named Jimmy, and Jimmy says, Operation Song did more for me than a shrink could do in two years. Uh, I don't imagine you love the term shrink, but I wonder how that how that makes you feel. Uh, actually, uh, it just validates what I'm saying, uh-huh. uh, that the talk therapy was getting nowhere uh, for him. And with the music therapy, he was able to cut through and get to where he needed to be to heal. You have listened to a lot of veteran songs. Are they all grim, or do some veterans share lighthearted experiences of their service? Some lighthearted. There's one in particular I really enjoy. It's called Honor Guard. And uh, this gentleman was um, part of the 175-man Honor Guard for General MacArthur. And that is just a wonderful song to listen to. It's clear how proud he is. And he was the last of the 175 still alive. Uh, another one uh, speaks about his tour of duty with the Navy, and he just really emphasizes how the Navy set him on the right path for his whole life. Uh, those are very positive songs. Goodness, I think of a Navy song we came across. I think we've got a snippet of it. Not knowing if we'd live or die, sometimes we just laugh. Sing along to Marty Robbins. Old town Johnny Cash Sometimes we'd get lucky All the tank at the Tiger Bear By the time we got to Saga Case or two might disappear Three, four, more We were the Gator League We were young and proud Crazy Oh, the world will never know Half of what we'd done We are talking about Operation Song, and my guest, Dr. David Good, is a psychiatrist who hopes to bring this program to Montrose, Colorado, which has become something of a haven for veterans. They have opened their arms to the veteran community. And, um, Dr., I wonder if 
there are eye rolls when this idea is first introduced to veterans or if immediately the notion that they might express themselves through music resonates with them? It resonates. Okay. <laughs> uh, I have not had any eye rolling at all. I have had uh, veterans being very excited about this, uh, as well as uh, family members, friends, and support staff here at uh, the Warrior uh, Resource Center here in Montrose. Um, the veterans their tell, their, tell their stories, I, I think, to some of country music's best songwriters in Nashville. Can you give us a sense of how the writer and the veteran work together? Yes. Uh, when we have the retreat, uh, a veteran will pair up with a music, uh, a musician, and a songwriter. They will go off, and uh, the veteran will tell his story. Uh, the songwriter is then uh, working on putting the essence of the story, capturing the essence, and putting it into 80 words. Uh, the uh, in the meantime, the musician is strumming along and beginning to develop uh, the song itself. So that's how they begin it. And after the following day, they have the song written, and it's played for the family, the veterans, and friends that have been invited. Uh, and it, there's been very small percentage, one or two percent. Uh, in fact, only one or two people that have had a negative experience where it just was a bit overwhelming for them. That is to say, it, it accessed a memory that was maybe a bit overwhelming. Yes, it was overwhelming, and that's the purpose of having therapists available at the retreat. Uh, so just in case there's someone that is feeling overwhelmed, we've got support staff there for them. It's been lovely talking to you, Doctor. Thanks so much for your time. Yeah, thank you very much. I appreciate your having me. Dr. David Good is a mantra psychiatrist who works with veterans, and he believes turning trauma into song can be a powerful tool. Here's one more song from another participant in the Nashville program. Chapter one time One more week I've made it now my war in battle's gone I rest in peace in our land My wife is here most days with me Won't you come and keep us company The last Monday in May When all This year, Matthew Shepard will have been gone for as long as he was alive. 21 years ago, the openly gay Wyoming college student was beaten, tied to a fence, and left for dead. His murder shocked the country and gave an enormous boost to the fight against hate crimes. His parents, Judy and Dennis Shepard, founded the Matthew Shepard Foundation based in Denver. Matthew also lived in Denver for a time, and tonight the Shepherds will be honored as civil rights champions by the Anti-Defamation League. They joined me last month from their home in Casper, Wyoming. Judy Dennis, thank you for being with us. Thanks so much for having us. Thank you so much for uh, the interest. 
Judy, this award from ADL's Mountain States chapter is for working on causes that were also championed by your son, Matthew. Social justice, diversity, equality for GLBT people. How soon after his death did you know you dedicate the rest of your lives to this? Well, even when Matt was still in the hospital, we knew we needed to do something. The communications we'd been getting from parents and members of the community were like, please use this moment in time when people will be listening to you to express your hope that other parents will accept their children. Because as accepting parents, it was a little unusual maybe in the late 90s to be accepting, and they wanted us to remind people how important it is to love your kids. And maybe they would rethink uh, that they needed their children back in their family because at least they still had their children. So even when Matt was still in the hospital, we knew if the opportunity came up, we would take advantage of it. And we started the foundation on Matt's birthday, December 1st, 1998, about two months after he passed. Oh, my. Certainly didn't think it was going to be dedicating the rest of our lives. We thought two years, maybe, people would remember Matt and Matt's story. So the notion that it was dedicating our lives to this work, we would do it in whatever way we could, but probably not in the way we're doing it now. I mean, I I would be the P-flag mom making cookies, not the P-flag mom at the podium. PFLAG is an organization for parents and friends of lesbians and gays. Dennis, were you surprised by how quickly Matthew's story went global and how profoundly it affected people? Well, we were rather shocked because we were in Saudi at the time, and I was working over there. And what happened was the initial response we got was that he has severe head injuries, and we thought it was a vehicle accident. So that's all we thought about all the way back over. It took almost 50 hours to get back hmm. with all the layovers and the fact that this we got the call at 5 in the morning and we couldn't leave till after midnight. And then with the layovers and the flights and everything. So we, we just thought it was a vehicle accident until we got to Minneapolis to pick up our other son. And, and Judy's sister and niece met us at the uh, jetway. He said his story is all over the internet, radio, newspaper, everything, news, TV. He said, for what, a car accident? She said, well, it's not a car accident. Hmm. And um, it just exploded. And we were rather shocked then, and we still are. It's just, he seems to be the kid next door. Everybody can relate to it. It doesn't matter your religion or your your gender or whatever, uh, your race they could all pick out something in there that reminded them of of themselves or or a close friend or a relative. And it just has stayed that way ever since. This award from the ADL specifically mentions the passage of the Hate Crimes Prevention Act of 2009, which you and Judy helped make happen. Has that law made well, it... let me correct you right there. Yes, please. I didn't help make anything happen. Judy did it. I was back in Saudi Arabia for 12 more years mm. to pay the bills. It was Judy's work that did that, not mine. Judy, has that law made a difference? I would say yes, it has, symbolically at least, given a route for members of the LGBT community to seek justice if the states they live in do not do that. Five states have no hate crime laws. Of the states that do, not all of them cover the LGBTQ plus community. So this was a backstop to protect them. But there have been successful prosecutions. There have been challenges to it that have not succeeded. 
So I feel confident that this will um, this will stay on the books as it is. I, it actually has a fatal flaw in that it doesn't require reporting because without required reporting, we really don't know where the issues are. No numbers, no problems. So um, this is something we're trying to address now. Talk to me just a bit more about the reporting. So according to FBI data in 2017, about 16% of reported hate crimes were related to a person's sexual orientation. But I have a feeling you think that's underreported. Oh, absolutely, without question. Let's just start at the states where you can be fired from your job for being gay. Why would you report a hate crime if you're in danger of being outed and losing your job? And maybe you're not out to your family either. This is a this is a serious problem. The only way we can protect those folks is to do federal job protections um, like we do for everybody else in this country. Also, if members of the community fear retaliation, re-victimization from officers, um, they're afraid of the reactions they're going to get. Plus, it takes time for hate crimes to be investigated and prosecuted, and oftentimes they lose patience. So this is a this is a problem that can be addressed, but it's going to take the cooperation of everybody involved. We don't currently place enough importance on hate crimes. We were starting to get there in the previous administration, but right now they've definitely taken a back seat. So until we make them important again, underreporting is going to continue, and not just for the gay community, but marginalized communities, uh, Muslims, immigrants, refugees. Uh, anybody in fear of, of another reason to be re-victimized by another entity is a reason for them not to want to report. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and I'm joined by Dennis and Judy Shepard, parents of Matthew Shepard and founders of the Matthew Shepard Foundation, which is based uh, partly in Wyoming, partly in Colorado. It is in memory of Matthew Shepard, the 21-year-old gay Wyoming college student who was tortured, tied to a fence, left for dead. And the Shepherd's work has earned them an honor from the Anti-Defamation League. Dennis, back in October, Matthew was laid to rest at the National Cathedral in Washington, D.C. And I just want to play a few of your words from the ceremony. It's so important that we now have a home for Matt a home that others can visit, a home that is safe from haters. Can you help us understand what you mean by the haters? Was Matt's grave being desecrated? He was never in a grave. We kept his ashes here because we wanted to scatter him in Wyoming, but His younger brother said, I need a place to go to visit him. And we didn't want to separate the ashes. So we kept him here. And we didn't want to put his ashes any place where there was a chance of vandalism. And we knew it would happen. As soon as you got out of sight, there'd be somebody in there either tearing up the headstones or throwing paint or doing something to vandalize it and destroy it and desecrate it. And so we were having a a tough problem deciding what we were going to do. And the cathedral was the perfect solution because it allows everybody to go there. It's a safe place for them to reflect uh, on their lives and their friends and family and to think about Matt and what his sacrifice did for others. But it also shows the country that there is a 
a national cathedral, which represents the entire country, that is all-inclusive and accepts everybody. When you say that you had fears there would be vandalism if he were buried somewhere sort of accessible, maybe in Wyoming, what, what do you base those fears on? Well, based on the history of what's happened since we lost him. And not just LGBTQ, but look at the synagogues, look at the, the race, the religion, everything. They are still having problems. And with this administration, they've just gotten worse. And so we knew that would happen. And when you're in a state like Wyoming, Judy mentioned there are five states with no hate crime laws whatsoever. Former southern states, Indiana, Georgia, South Carolina, and Arkansas. The other is Wyoming. So the, the motto is the equality state, and there is no equality here for all its citizens, just like there is no equality throughout the country for all of its citizens. Is it hard to, in your own backyard, where Matthew died, not to have seen that change? It's, it's rather demoralizing, depressing, and disgusting, actually. Here you have a state that is crying now because of the energy problem. They used to be in, in the black, uh, money-wise budget. Now they're in the red, and now they want to diversify their economy. They're not going to do it until they have a hate crime law, and a, and a uh, job discrimination protection law for all of its citizens. Because no corporation is coming in here if they can't hire the best. And right now they can't because they can't protect them. Judy, what is the nature of your work now? What are you most focused on in terms of policy change or social change? Oh gosh, I think they're kind of the same. Policy change only works if you can get the social change to come along with it. Uh, once you got to get the policy in effect first. So we got the hate crime bill in the law now, and um, we're focusing, again, on hate crime education. We do conferences around the country, we're working with local law enforcement and non-government organizations, community organizations, citizens, anybody who's interested in finding out what the hate crime law does and doesn't do, explaining how to investigate, um, how to prosecute, actually the definition of what a hate crime is. So that's our focus right now. Colorado, where the Matthew Shepard Foundation has a, an important office, and I, I think where Matt lived for a time, he was in Denver at a, for a period of time, right? Right. Yeah. Colorado just swore in an openly gay governor. The state also has its the state also has its That's first great. openly transgender lawmaker. Are these milestones that y- you think Matthew would have envisioned? Could have envisioned? No, I, I don't think. Well, he was only 21. I'm not sure those kinds of things were on his radar yet. Uh, marriage definitely was. Uh, we had had that discussion the summer of 98 when Hawaii was discussing uh, same-sex marriage. But the rest, I'm not really sure, was on his radar yet in any way where he thought it was achievable um, yet. And the Denver did the uh, conversion therapy ban, another huge step, especially considering where Colorado was not that many years ago. This is a ban on the type of therapy that attempts to make gay people straight, which has largely been scientifically debunked. Oh, it's, it's a torture session. Do you remember what it was like when Matt came out to you? It was like, finally. <laughs> finally, you're going you're gonna to tell us who you are? Yay! Um, I had had a strong suspicion since he was about eight years old that he might be gay. And so when he did come out to me, he was uh, 18, a college freshman, 
on the phone when we were living in Saudi, um, I was relieved that he was ready to be himself. Matthew has been gone as long as he was alive. Uh, 21, much. 21 years. What is the nature of grief 21 years later? You know, that's a really good question. It doesn't go away. The concept of closure is, uh, is a joke. It just gets different. Rose Kennedy used to refer to it as the scab you continually remove. You think you're healing and then something happens and you realize you're not. You just learn to build your life around the wound. Dennis, 21 years later, what is the nature of grief for you? It's more anger that somebody decided to be judge, jury, and executioner against somebody who was different. Well, we're all different. They didn't look in the mirror and see how they were and what they looked like. And so you take the grief, you live with it, but you take the anger and you focus it. And that's all we're trying to do is help these young people have a better life so they're all considered equal and they get an equal chance to succeed. Thanks for being with us. Of course. It's uh, our pleasure. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much for your interest. And we really look forward to coming to Denver. Judy and Dennis Shepard are the parents of Matthew Shepard, the gay 21-year-old who was murdered in 1998. The Shepards are being honored tonight with a Civil Rights Award from the Mountain States chapter of the Anti-Defamation League. By the way, the Matthew Shepard Foundation is based in Denver, and Matthew lived in Denver for a time. Last year, on the 20th anniversary of Shepard's death, an oratorio debuted called Considering Matthew Shepard. It toured throughout the West, including here in Colorado, and we're going to leave you with a track called The Fence. Out and alone on the endless empty prairie The moon bathes me The stars bless me The sun warms me The wind soothes me I wonder I wonder Will I always be out here Exposed and alone Will I ever know why I was put here on this earth Will somebody someday Chilling image, The Fence, that's from an oratorio called Considering Matthew Shepard. Thanks for spending time with us. Our producers include Anthony Cotton, Andrea Dukakis, Michelle P. Fulcher, and Alexandra McMahon. Our executive producer is Carl Bielek. I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I wonder...